0: Listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague.
1: My guest today is editor Philip O'Donovan, who established her business, Smart Quill in 2011. Since then, she's worked with around 300 authors and recommends to a stable of 50 literary agents based in the UK, Australia, and the US. In 2014, she was named Publishing Rising Star and is editorial consultant for the Authors Club at Soho House, West Hollywood. Particularly exciting is Philippa's recent move to LA, which will herald great opportunities for authors, connecting up selected manuscripts with literary agents, film and TV producers via an online platform, the Smart Quill Boutique. Welcome to this week's podcast, Philippa.
2: Hello. Thank you.
1: <laughs> now, one of the things I've noticed straight away, and this is nothing to do with uh, with books and, and getting published, is you're all over the place <laughs> in the world. You have a great life. <laughs>
2: Um, I am all over the place in the world. I mean, I think that is born partly from the fact that I I grew up in Australia and there's a real wanderlust with Australians because I think we feel often quite far away from the rest of the world. So we are pretty intrepid travelers um, and that's really stuck for me. So I I moved to uh, London when I um, graduated from university and started working in publishing and worked in publishing for about 15 years in London. Uh, and then decided to move around even more. Um, and it's it's a good thing to do because I feel like it gives me a real insight into certainly what different territories are focusing on in terms of publishing, um, writing styles, writing trends. And on a real sort of editorial level, interestingly, I think it gives me a real insight into characterization. So when I'm editing um, manuscripts where – there are certain characters being pulled into play. If I've seen a lot of people in the world, I think it sort of gives me uh, a sort of a, a wider a wider gauge on on authenticity. So that's the way I that's the way I explain it. Anyway, um yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing to be able to travel
1: so much. It's very nice. It's always nice when you're connected to people on Twitter and they're jet setting all over the place. <laughs> yeah, and you that wonderful (laughs) life vicariously it's very nice you're very interested because you're one of these people I'm an indie author through and through yet you're one of these people who've who've come through the traditional path Mm. and are now working with indie authors I I always think you're very fascinating because you've got feet in two camps Mm -hmm. you can see it from both sides Mm. but you you started traditional as you say how did you start in, in the sort of publishing editing industry
2: uh, so I started working for a, a literary agency, um, uh, as a receptionist, in fact, which is, really yeah, that's sort of, you know, publishing is pretty old school like that. There's that real sense that you, that you have to, you have to earn, you have to earn your way. Um, so most people start as an assistant, uh, or doing sort of pretty menial jobs and then you prove yourself and then you get responsibility for working more closely with the authors. So it was it was a wonderful, wonderful literary agency uh called AP Watts. And it was the it's the oldest literary agency in the world, in fact. And we had some absolutely beautiful, beautiful authors. We looked after estates as well. So WB Yates we looked after and Richard Kipling, uh Woodhouse was with us at the time that I was working there. And I was responsible for signing off all the permissions as well. So if anyone wanted to quote Kipling in a movie or a book, then I was, I used to administrate all of that. So receptionists are never just receptionists in, in any kind of publishing endeavor. You know, I was reading a lot of the, the manuscripts that were coming through submissions uh, and doing, you know, all sorts of things. You're highly involved. So um, I started working for them. They've now been bought by United Agents. Um, but, you know, the people that were at What were hugely influential on my career. I worked for two incredible literary agents, and then I ended up being an associate agent. I was there for about, I think, six years in the end. So it was quite, it was quite an elongated stint.
1: To somebody who's an indie author like me, who's not really, I'm not really familiar with the machinations Mm -hmm. of traditional, and you're talking about all these, you know, associates and and all of this. What does it mean? Is it just moving up the ranks?
2: Yeah, effectively. It's a recognition of the fact that you're no longer a junior and that when you get to associate level, you do a certain amount of negotiation on behalf of the, of the authors, but not necessarily book deals. It's often ancillary deals. So things like individual, um, pieces for uh, newspapers or journals. So the Times, um, The Guardian I used to negotiate with. Uh, so it very much sort of smaller projects. Uh, and also audiobook rights, speaking availability, uh, book tours. So it was all the – it was everything that, that an author is expected to do around writing a book Uh, so and a lot of the publicity used to come back to me uh scheduling for sort of you know authors if they were um going through publication so um you get to work really closely with the authors and as I say do some level of negotiation but you're just not negotiating primary
1: book deals and what was your experience in that respect? Had you Were you just a, were you an avid reader? What do you need to have to work in that industry?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because I was always an avid reader but never really thought of it as a career path. I, I, I did law at university and economics um, separately, so I was at university for a very long time. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I, I always thought I'd go into you know a law firm and, and maybe even go to the bar, in fact, but... Um, it was absolutely, it was just a voracious love of books which put me in the agency and the fact that I, I respected the craft so much. And I was hugely naive. I mean, I didn't have any experience in working with authors or for a publisher. Uh, you know, it was very much an entry-level job. But I think that enthusiasm for writers and what they do and, uh, was the thing that really resonated for me in that first job and is, is in fact is still today what what i what i what I do. it's it's my job is to help authors connect with their own enthusiasm for their writing, uh, you know, regardless of whether they go on to be traditionally published or if it's something they want to affect themselves, it makes no difference to me, and you're quite right. I do cross over both uh, both branches. Because I feel like they're actually compatible. I don't feel like there's any there's any uh, sort of friction between them necessarily. I think at the beginning, everyone kind of wanted there to be. I <laughs> think everyone wanted yes. there to be sort of a mass showdown. <laughs> yes. But you know, <laughs> ultimately, for me, writers are writers, and 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 that process that they go through, I have such a huge amount of respect for, and it's a privilege for me to be involved in it and to watch it. Uh, and, and, and in certain cases to assist. But, you know, I'm very much in the support role. Um, and that is precisely the reason I think I got the job in the literary agency to begin with and embarked on a publishing career and is precisely, as I say, it's, it's what I do to this
1: day. And interesting, I heard you speak at the author school first of all. I think you mentioned there that you you don't write yourself. No. it's not something that you feel that you even want to do.
2: no, it's it's a, for me, it's a real kind of demarcation as well because I think a lot of consultants out there, um, they use other writers to critique writers. And you know that's wonderful because no one has the sort of insight into the writing process like someone who actually, you know, has done it or has been published or as, you know, sort of self-published works themselves. Uh, but for me, I always wanted my authors to feel like my role was entirely separate to theirs, you know, and I think that's very comforting for some for some authors that they feel that, you know, on a very kind of basic level as well, that there's, there's no envy on my part, there's no um, longing that I can do what they do or respecting an idea so much that I feel like that's something that I'd want to take on and write myself you know it's I, I'm not a writer it's really interesting someone once said to me you know there are sort of two roles in the world and if you have a blank page some people look at the blank page and they will write it and some people need that page to be filled so that they can move everything around and work with it. So mm. you're either a constructionist or you're a deconstructionist and I have always been a deconstructionist you know I when I talk about smart quill one of the things that I say, repeatedly is that i'm a reader and i've always been a reader i'm not a writer and sometimes those things go together and i have huge respect for that but for me for my consultancy and the authors that i work with i wanted to be really clear about that i will never do what you do uh which means that i'm allowed to do what i do to its full extent you know i can read and edit and assess and deconstruct and that's the thing that i love uh but it's very interesting on the rare times where I have been asked to kind of fill in the blanks for authors, I, I really struggle. It's just not as I say, I'm not I'm not a constructionist. It's just not it's just not my role in the process.
1: That's very interesting. And I have to say that my my experience to date with, with say the traditional publishing industries and I, I've f- often felt that agents can be pretty dismissive of authors. It feels quite dismissive and judgmental, yet you sound uh, very respectful and uh, move towards a, a partnership by the sounds of things.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting and actually being in LA has really clarified that for me because uh, the way that it, the industry works here and I have a feeling that it will end up going this way in the UK and then I hope in Australia as well at some point. Uh, is that any any writer working in Hollywood, they have an agent and they have a manager. Uh, so there's, there's two roles allocated to every every person who's sort of creating the content and creating the words. Uh, and that makes sense to me because... They sort of should be separate roles. I mean, the agent is very much responsible for the negotiation. You know, the legalities, contractual issues. You know, it's monetary, um, it's transactional, as well as being hugely emotional, emotionally supportive to the author. And there's a lot of editorial work involved for some agents, and not for others. It depends on the agent. So there's definitely room for another another role in that trajectory. And the manager role in Hollywood is is much more um, early development uh, support, thinking of ideas, thinking of opportunities. It, it's uh, it's like a kind of brethren role. So, you know, why it hasn't spun out that way in the UK. Yet, I think is very interesting. But I do think, given the increasing pressures on agents, and that is possibly the reason why they come across as dismissive. It is you know their their role has changed so much in the last fifteen years, and not just because of all the digital innovations. Um, but I think it means that they are hugely squeezed in so many respects, uh, and that in itself means that really there is room for other people to be supporting. The authors within the process and also supporting as a result the agents and the publishers and all the digital platforms you know effectively what I want is for there to be really really wonderful books for readers to read because I'm a reader you know that is my goal that is what I want so if I focus on that very early stage of the process then then I'm doing the best job that I can
1: and a wonderful book could be a different thing we've got the 50 shades series which no right. one claims is a work of literature but but it yeah. gets books into millions of hands and that has to be a good thing
2: it's a wonderful thing and i this is the thing i i sort of slightly i resist the idea that you know there is only one type of reader and therefore only one type of book that should be recognized as as wonderful, you know, we're all individuals and we all have different tastes. The idea of something like Fifty Shades, where it got a whole lot of people who were not necessarily avid readers to pick up a book and read, to go into a bookstore, to go into a WH Smith at the airport, um, and and take that on their holiday—that just fills my heart with joy. That's exactly what I want to affect. But nor do I think that every book should be a Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, I think there's room for all sorts of stories and all sorts of readers as i say like we are all individuals it needs to be as eclectic as possible and that is one wonderful thing about uh the the independent publishing movement is that i think it's given it's given voice and platform to a whole lot of people who are not being represented by publishing you know it has opened up the market magnificently it's, it's interesting so genre uh fiction so things like sci-fi and fantasy were always almost like the kind of like little sister of publishing you know everyone had an imprint that did it but it, it just didn't it didn't sort of garner the same sort of gravitas as the as the fiction and nonfiction department so but you know in it what's happened with with the self-publishing movement is that everyone's realized there's so much money <laughs> in sci-fi mm-hmm. and fantasy and crime and 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 so people just go direct and can and can explore that themselves and not be reliant on you know, one industry to dictate exactly, you know, what it is that everyone should be reading. You know, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me.
1: It's very interesting looking at your your career history to date. That you were you were in traditional publishing at the time when the Kindle was coming on board. And people yeah. were starting to buy it. It caught us all by surprise. Yeah. So you must have seen some pretty shocked faces yeah. at work.
2: <laughs> yes. Actually, it's very interesting. I've got I've got a lovely friend that works for Google and has worked for Google for a long, long time. And his mother is um, a really prominent editor at Random House and also a writer. So she's, she's, I mean, she's incredible. So he grew up very much as the son of, a, of an editor and of, a, and of a writer, so in traditional publishing sort of world, um, but works for a highly kind of acquisitive and digital um, company and he came in to uh speak to my workplace just kind of tell them what he thought digital publishing might look like you know text on screen uh and was talking about you know ball bearings and grey text and i mean it sounded like something out of a out of a out of a dystopia i mean it was really quite i mean i think everyone just wanted him to go away because it was so, it was so <laughs> yeah. terrifying i mean this is really oh that must have been two thousand and thousand and two or 2003 like even that before was the even before the Sony e-reader had come out like it was before readers even existed it was it was so early in the process so um and interestingly some of what he said came to pass and other things have not um, but I think it has made everyone think very differently about the way in which we consume books uh, and length and attention span and genre and, and, and really focusing on you know, what, what do readers want, which is precisely what it should have been. There was so much focus on what do Waterstones want, what does WH Smith want, what does Tesco want, You know, and that they are a representative for the consumer, but they're not the end consumer really. The reader makes the ultimate decision about what they want to read. And I love the fact that the digital has kind of opened up into that market. It's, it now, now we have a direct conversation with the reader. While well, the intermediaries interpreting it for us,
1: I'm very interested that you moved on a- out of traditional publishing in 2011. Now that must have been when indie publishing was just really starting to ignite. Yeah, is that what made you go? No, it wasn't.
2: It was all it was all sort of um uh it was miraculous actually in terms of the timing of it. I mean, I sort of had this idea that I wanted to work more closely with authors in the in the publishing house that I worked for. You know, so much of my day was taken up with, um, you know, very. It was very interesting work, but it, it really wasn't the close collaboration that I had expected when I when I when I was being trained as an editor. Uh, so, I, what I ideally wanted to do was carve out a place for myself, which was, uh, as I say, working much more closely with the authors and trying to get a sense of what they needed from the process. You know, how I could support them fully, and so. At the, I mean, I, I set up SmartQuil and then sort of looked around and, and thought, gosh, well, there seems to be a lot more kind of authors out there that might need my help now, because traditionally, you would only get an editor once you had got a publishing deal. And all of a sudden, here I was, an editor that you could have regardless of whether you had an agent or a publisher at all. So I was sort of opening up the market. And that was called disintermediation for a while, this idea of the publishing houses fracturing and the traditional roles within publishing you know outsourcing and sort of saying you know we are now available to all and now a lot of people do that very successfully you know that's 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 a whole industry in and of itself sort of publishing services uh but no it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't intentional it was just a rather sort of a, a happy a happy coincidence I would say that that all came together rather beautifully
1: <laughs> and you were uh, you were starting up a business effectively so did did, did was there an instant uh, supply of clients for you no it
2: was I mean it, uh, so the first sort of six months I was still working for uh, the publisher and setting up smartquill and they had given me their sign off for me to do that because I think they were quite interested in it as a as as an initiative as a as a concept so they kind of wanted to see how it all panned out. So it was pretty slow, but that was intentional from my perspective, because I didn't want to be overrun with work. You know, I still had a full-time job as a commissioning editor, which meant, you know, you read every night, you read all weekend. And then I was taking on extra editorial work through SmartQuil. So it was rather um, low level to begin with, but I would say it's always been steady and now now it is steady and not low level (laughs) now it is steady and crazy (laughs) which is wonderful um but it's you know it's one of the things that i that i sort of pride myself on is that i don't outsource any of the reading or any of the editing if you come to me you get me and also i don't advertise because i don't want to be overrun with authors i want i want people to come to me who really feel like they need that 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 personal connection and they want the editor to be there you know to be a sort of a, a very um, a sort of individual support as opposed to just a, a, a you know a, a project manager um, so I'm sort of highly I'm highly conscious of that and as a result as I say the two things that I don't advertise so I don't get overrun with with inquiries so I can focus on the people that really do find me uh, and and there's that real sense that I will I, I don't want to scale my business I don't want to outsource I want it to be you know wholly about the editorial support that i can provide to authors
1: and you sound like you found the ideal location free job to do because you can take an e-book with you anywhere can't you (laughs)
2: yes i mean hence all the traveling i mean it is there's a there's a real freedom in that and as i say i think it keeps my it does keep my skills rather sharp because i'm meeting new people all the time and so i have a much sort of you know a much wider consciousness i think of 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 natural reactions, so both in fiction and nonfiction, you know, it's it's like a, sort of a, a world education that I'm sort of appropriating at the moment, and that that is only a good thing because it means that I have, as I say, a kind of a wider a wider understanding of different characters and different scenarios, uh, and also given the you know the work that I'm doing with American writers um, here in LA, it's really important for me to be based here a bit and to move around so you have different cultural references and you have um you know there's a there's a, there's a there's a broadness to my to my understanding of the way that people interact which i think is that is that enhances the feedback that i'm that i that i can that i can give to to authors
1: when authors come to you what typically are they looking for from you and are they are they all independent authors these days
2: Uh, no, it's probably about, it's very interesting. When I first started up, it probably was about 5% independent and 95% um, who wanted a traditional experience. And now it's more like sort of 60, 40, which I think is really lovely and very reflective of the changing market and the years that have passed since I set SmartQuil up, um, so what they look, I mean, it's so interesting. Every single author is different. And that is the thing that I love the most. No, no one person will come to me and want the precise same experience as the next. And some of them need a lot of uh, sort of pre-work, I would say. So I do a lot of discussion with them before I commence the edit. Some of them need a lot of aftercare and others just want to crack on with the revise. They don't need my, they don't want to run anything past me. Um, some of them want to put it in a drawer for a year and not look at it again,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: which I totally understand. Uh, so I mean every single author has a different way of working and a different vision for their for their writing, and I just I try and get a sense of that from the outset, and then I try and give them what they want, give them what they want for their writing skills and for their for their writing career.
1: And practically, what does it mean for you? If I handed over a manuscript to you, what would then happen to that? What would you have to work through? Well,
2: initially, I would say how many edits has it been through? And it's very interesting as well, because at the beginning, you know, sort of five years ago when when SmartQuar was establishing, there was a, a lot of authors would say, why would I need an editor? You know, I'm a writer. And so therefore, what I do is perfect. And I can just deliver it and it will be perfect. And you know what? It's true for some writers. That is the case. But even for writers... Like Hemingway and, um, oh my goodness, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee, you know, they had really, really incredible editors that they, that they worked very closely with. So, you know, the editor is definitely a support role. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a minor role, but it's still an important part of the writing process. And it always has been. You know, the writer is responsible for the creation. And then you have someone who receives that creation. And I would never get in the way of that of that process. And I, I'm not dogmatic, and I'm not didactic in the way that I feedback. Ultimately, the final call about what is published or what is sent out is up to the author. But I can't. I have you know, I have ideas, I have suggestions, I have things they might want to consider. You know, it's it's very it's hugely optional. The whole thing is optional. So the first question I would ask you if you came to me is, how many edits has it been through by you? Like how many times you've revised it? How many drafts you've done? and then how many other people have read it and fed back. So they can either be professional editors like me, so people that you don't know who do this work because they have a a background in it and a huge amount of expertise, or beta readers who tend to just be kind of friends and family who give sort of indicators as to things that they liked and didn't like in a very sort of general reader feedback way. Um, Once I have a sense of how many drafts and revises it's been through, then I can figure out where I'm going to add value. So either it's structural editing, which is very much the beginning of the process, um, or copy editing, which is slightly further along, or proofreading. Um, Traditionally, there's the three stages of editing, and ideally you sort of want a different person to do each one if I'm being completely honest. Because you have, as we used to say in publishing, you have fresh eyes on a manuscript, which is very empowering as a writer. You know, Because if if you want your work to resonate with more than one person, then you need more than one person to have to have read it before it goes out in the wild.
1: How much psychology is involved in that relationship? Because from, from an author's point of view, if you put a lot of time, effort, and love into something, mm. you kind of want to feel that the editor feels the same way about it, mm. I suppose.
2: Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I'm so determined not to scale Smart in any way and to retain all of the editing and reading so that sort of lies with me because it means that I end up really personally connecting with the author and caring about them uh, and caring about their experience of writing and of publishing, which means that I really do have a vested interest in in the work. As I say, it's it's about me. Working with people on projects, rather than projects that are attached to people, you know, the person is the genesis point for me. It always has been. I like working with authors. I like I like working with people. I like travelling. I like meeting people. So um, that's that's the point at which I will always sort of enter the discussion, which I think makes the authors, my authors, feel very feel very safe and like it's not just about you know a one shot edit and then they'll never hear from me again. You know, I'm always there and. You know with uh, 300 authors there's a lot of authors a lot of people that have, have passed through smart quill stores now and still now people who i i edited you know three or four years ago get in contact and they'll say you won't believe it i just won an award or um i've just hit you know some sort of mega sales number i decided to go direct in the end but thank you for your help you know so there's that real sense that they kind of come back to me and tell them and tell me where the where the process has, has landed them even after years and years have passed, which I just love, it means that they they know that I care. I, you know I want to hear the updates, I want to know what they're doing, even if I'm no longer editing the work. There's a longevity to the relationship, which, you know, as I say, it's a real privilege to have that because there's very few um, roles in publishing now where you can where you can affect that. Agents have it to a certain extent um but publishers less and less so although you know it's changing again I love the fact that the dynamic in publishing it's shifting so much at the moment where everyone tries to figure out how we all fit in together and the Mm. fact that this is all extremely compatible you know the independent publishing and the traditional publishing it's very compatible universes it's just about it's about logistics
1: would you knock a book back because it didn't resonate with you in any way. Could, could you read anything in edit it or, or do you have to have that involvement in it in some way?
2: No, I mean, I think what I would say is um, I have a real sense of, like, people that I can work with and I think they have a sense that they can work with me. Um, so, again, it's that 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 launch point is very much the personal connection. The only reason I tone work right down is, number one, I'm too busy, or number two, it's a subject where I just don't think I'm going to be I'm not the right editor for it. And that's often the nonfiction work. So if it's something very academic, is a specialist subject. Sometimes with self-help work, I sort of feel like if I'm not the reader for this, then I really don't have any right to edit it or kind of make a call on it. So it's more about my own sense of my limitations. Um, but other than that, in terms of genre, I mean, I read very widely anyway. I read everything. I read literary fiction Commercial fiction, sci-fi. I love crime and thrillers. I just finished judging a thriller competition. In fact, Uh, I read YA. I love middle grade. I read picture books. I used to edit picture books as well. Uh, You know, I don't count anything out in terms of genre, which I think again is really good. I think when I first started, there was a lot of people had a lot of advice for me, uh, and one of the bits of advice was. You need to be sort of highly specialist. You know, you need to pick a bit of the market and stick to it and only edit that, that work. And in fact, what has proved to be much better for me editorially is if I read very widely uh, and then then able to work across genres, I think it actually makes me, um, I think it makes me sharper because I sort of see different skills being employed, different techniques, different devices being used, different voices you know, that is going to make me, uh, I think a better judge of, 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 opportunities for writers. So yeah, I think that, um, I can't remember the beginning question,
1: <laughs> That's okay.
2: <laughs> but yes, so that's the end of that answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How would a piece of work come back from you? So if I hand over my word document to you, what, what's it going to look like when you've, Beat all over it.
2: Well, I mean, this is two options. Um, At the outset, as I say, I do a lot of structural editing. I can either do structural editing on screen, which is highly intensive work for me. And I can do about 10 to 15 pages a day before I feel like actually my brain, I can feel my brain sizzling. Like it's a very, very odd sensation, which means step away from the computer, Philippa, immediately before you have a meltdown. So that's the the first thing I can do. As I said, it's highly labor-intensive, and it's often for people... It's more of a form of ghostwriting than anything else, actually, because it's so... um, know it is very it's very invasive I would say but it's invasive in such a way that there are track changes and you can either accept them or reject them. So it can be as invasive as the author wants. You know you can reject everything I suggest and it's not gonna make it's not gonna matter to me. So but it just it often looks quite intimidating on the screen because there's a lot of red, a lot of markups. Um, The other thing that I do more often is is a structural report. Which is where I go away, I read the manuscript, and then I send you back notes with lots of examples from the text. And I have sort of four different levels of, of, of edits that I that I that I offer to authors. The most intensive, I call it a premium, because um, it's it is like super super intensive. And then the classic is still a full structural report, but it's it's less expansive. And then I have a, a pricey report, which is more like of a of a of a basic line edit. And I often offer that as a follow-up. So if I've read something in full and structurally edited it, then the next step would be for me to do a line edit in the form of a precy report. So they're like, they're just, uh, they're sort of staggered. They're, they're tears of editing, which is exactly how it, it is. I mean, they, I read an article the other day that said you should really do six drafts on your own so revise your manuscript six times before you start the editorial process. You know I mean, I don't like rules like that necessarily because I think every author is different, has different experience and expectation. but you know as a guideline, I think it shows the the, the, the number of revises that 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 are envisaged for a work before it gets out into into the public domain. And I love the fact that now authors and coming back to what I said before are so much more willing to work with editors now. It's not just something they feel, you know, they don't see it as a as a criticism that it means their work is no good because they need an editor. Hugely talented writers have always used editors. It's always been part of the process. It just wasn't very public. It's just that no one knew that was what was going on in the publishing yeah. houses. And now this process of disintermediation it means that we do know who is involved in in the publishing of a book and what that looks like you know you have you have an art department you have an editorial department you have sales you have marketing you have distribution you have public public um, publicity and you have marketing so now I find authors they, they don't feel like it's a judgment that their work is no no good or that it's it's not it's not publishable it's that this is the most wonderful bit of the process, the bit where I get to start to talk to someone about it. <laughs> this is the bit where it's, you know, it's, and I know it's scary, that that, that moment where you hand it over to the first person for an external read. Uh, but I try and make that um, process of, uh, of, of relinquishing a manuscript out into the wider world as safe and as, as comforting as possible, because I, you know, as I say, I've worked with a lot of authors and I, I feel for them very deeply, and I, I I love my authors, and I am really conscious that that moment of handing over the manuscript is is a point of real vulnerability. So I do everything I can to to make that transition point seamless and 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 safe for them, so that they. Don't feel as overwhelmed or as intimidated by it as 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 they might do if they were sending it to someone, to an agent or to many agents, or or just literally like pressing a button on a computer to publish it and put it out there in the world.
1: I'm really pleased you said that because I had an early bad experience with an editor, mm. and for me it was like going to a bad dentist. Oh yeah, and it, no, it's it, awful. It, it frightens you for life.
2: Yeah. I know. <laughs>
1: And you don't want to go back I again. I
2: know, it's true. But, you know, it's so interesting because I think a lot of the people who were editing um, freelance a couple of years ago didn't come from publishing houses because all the publishing houses were retaining the editors. Uh, so they, they were coming at it from a very, um, you know, from, from from a non, just a very, very different a different perspective. And didn't have a real understanding of what authors wanted from the process. They may have been editorially trained, but being editorially trained and then to work with authors, they're two very different things. So um, that is the advantage of working with someone who's come from a traditional background because we have only ever been taught sort of the greatest respect for writers uh, because we love reading, we love books.
1: I'm very excited by your move to L.A. When we were at the author school and uh, Helen told me that you were coming along, I thought, "Oh, this is so exciting. It's uh, <laughs> We could almost touch the film world from <laughs> here. It, <Yeah. laughs> it, it is very exciting. Any, any mention of L.A., you know, any mention of Hollywood yeah. gets authors excited. So, so what is this work? Could you talk us through what you're doing there?
2: Yeah, of course. So, yeah. Um I was sort of highly aware that really what I wanted was to open up as many opportunities for my authors as possible. So yes, I do the edits. Yes, I kind of try and add value by telling them about new competitions and initiatives that they might find interesting, open calls for submissions, new digital platforms. So I'm keeping an eye on the market for them. And I was highly conscious of this movement. Uh... This increasing reliance from Hollywood on original source material. So increasingly, what we're seeing is a lot of the really, really wonderful films and and, and TV series that are being um, that are being produced are based on books. So Game of Thrones or uh, The Martian or The Revenant. You know, five out of eight of the most recent best picture Oscar nominations were were based on a book. So I thought, well, look, there is a real There's a real opportunity for me there. Uh, If I go out to LA and I teach myself about book to film and how that process works, then I can be telling my authors about it and maybe even providing new opportunities for them. So if I'm meeting the producers, finding out what they want, like what sort of original source material they're particularly interested in, because like, like publishers, like agents, all the producers here have a different mandate and have a different thing they're good at or a different genre that interests them or a different writer that they like to work with so when i have an understanding of that market that will be advantageous to my authors so i'm giving them even more opportunities
1: and we live in a golden age of television television quality is just through the roof at the moment but particularly i'm thinking generally american television is just fantastic at the moment isn't so
2: it? so much activity here and it's largely a result of netflix and hulu and um, HBO Go, you know, so that, so you now have these highly accomplished production houses with their own channels. You know, they become the content curators. Uh, it gives them a huge amount of power. So it's no longer, you know, sort of, um, I mean, the networks still have power, as do the studios, but there's a real sense of, like, independent production companies uh, looking for material to develop, getting a name for a certain sort of storyline or or even approach or you know, cinematography uh, and using that to to get real traction in the market. So it's a really exciting time to be here. Authors are adored in L.A. because I think everyone's been so used to screenwriters. Uh, and there's so few of them here, really. I mean, the book industry is very much in New York and not in L.A. And that was the other reason I thought to come here, because there's so much conversation about film and TV and less about Books, although there is such a huge respect and interest in books, I, I suddenly thought, well, that's a perfect place for me to be. And as soon as I got here, I was snapped up by Soho House and asked to do these 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 writers writers workshops. Which, um you know, they're not it's not creative writing because I I slightly have an issue with that with that term. um I think all writing is creative. Like surely that's the point. I don't really understand how <laughs> you're I mean, writing, and it's not creative. Like that's a, that's that's misnomer for me. So, um, yeah, they're 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 fascinating, and and I do them once a month, and uh, and I meet lots of producers as I say, and get a sense of what they want. I try and set up my authors with producers as well as literary agents, and mainly I'm doing that via the boutique which you mentioned, which I set up last year and it's it's an online platform it's a locked area it's very exclusive it's for certain projects that i think is, are going to have traction in film and tv and it's a it's somewhere for me to put them and sort of shout about them to anyone that i meet that might be interested so it's just a kind of it's an extra it's an it's it's another option for people who come to me and want to and want to to work with me which i is really important as i say if i can't take on more editing jobs because my time is limited I need to be able to add value in other ways and that was something that I really thought might be attractive to to authors this kind of this insight into into Hollywood and how the process of adaptation works which is completely fascinating by the way and I was personally interested in it anyway
1: and what are they looking for a constant stream of of great stories?
2: It's so interesting sort of what translates and what doesn't so for example, something like The Revenant, which was a pretty quiet book i don't it certainly wasn't a bestseller, which then gets you know sort of turned into uh, you know an an award winning winning film um again, there are a huge number of producers here, and they are all looking for something slightly different. so one that I spoke to a little while ago is really keen on uh long form uh long form sort of narrative journalism. So basically anything that's like being published in a in a newspaper or a magazine, often real life story, which then can be elongated into into a film. Um so that's particularly what they're looking for. Someone said the other day here, a writer who I really respect actually, that he thinks that short stories translate better into films than than novels. Uh, and I think because there's more space, you know, a short story, there's so much narrative space in that for the director to visualise exactly where they want to place it. So, for example, something like *Breakback Mountain* that's a that's a wonderful example of that. You know, it's a thirty page short story which got turned into a like over I think it's two and a half hours. It's extraordinary that you can sort of tease that out to such an extent. So, and maybe there's something in that. But you know, always the the, the big sellers are going to convert into films just because producers will make them, uh, and then there are other very sort of general rules about what's going to make the transition, what's going to convert. But generally speaking, you know, it's an open field. It's very exciting. Everyone's looking for something slightly different.
1: It must be very interesting for you as an Australian, yes, <laughs> uh, looking at uh, us British and the, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the Americans because the Americans have a very different attitude towards failure. Than us Brits. Right. They're, they're very pick yourself up and start again. Um, yeah. How, how does all that work? Because that's got a big melting pot, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, you know, it, again, I sort of feel like it's it's hugely educational for me, uh, which is, is really such an important thing if I'm going to be editing and reading authors' you know, masterpieces. It's so important that I have a marker on how different countries interact what they value what they um what they give merit to what they denigrate how they deal with failure how they deal with success what they find funny what they don't find funny I mean it, it's like a anthropological experiment my trippings between Australia and the UK and the US but I traditionally in publishing there's a um there's a market called the World English Language Market. So often when you would buy rights to a book, you would you would bid for WEL. And that meant Australia New Zealand, US and Canada, and the UK. So for me, as as I say, it's a, a lot of um, you know a lot of scouting works so of talent scouting and then development work at the very, very early stage of of an author's career. I wanted to have a foothold in all three territories because that replicates something that has has always been a part of of publishing. The, the, the English language markets were the UK, the US and Australia. So I feel like that's, you know, and there's so much incredible um, undiscovered works in those territories. Uh, so I, I wanted, you know, Australia is very important to me because it's where I grew up, it's where I, you know, discovered my love for books in the first place. So I wanted to give some sort of acknowledgement to that by being available to Australian writers and helping them find an international market. And same thing with UK. I mean, again, the, 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 film, the film and TV work that I'm doing here is very much for my UK authors, because there are UK producers who are absolutely incredible, but so much of the conversation plays out here. And they don't have access to it, whereas I do now. So I'm, I'm, I'm connecting up I mean, my UK authors with the access points in Hollywood.
1: It's very exciting stuff. Yeah, and I, I was listening on a podcast the other day to a chap who was actually making indie films uh-huh. and selling them to, or trying to sell them to Prime and get them on Netflix. And you just think, well, this is just remarkable what's yeah. happening here. Yeah, that we can hit, hit an international audience with indie produced stories yeah that's fantastic isn't it yeah the creatives.
2: it's so interesting i i and again there's that real sense that there's a as a inherent um reverence for indie music uh you know india's word is is there's a there's a there's an idolation for it like like we like indie is good and it means Mm. that it's the quieter stories um but often that sort of more work has been put into them so I I love the fact that it's now being applied to publishing indie publishing is a wonderful thing independent bookstores are my favorite bookstores in the world because they make independent decisions (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you get to find things that you wouldn't necessarily find in some of the bigger bookstores. You know, having said that, there is space for for all. There is space for mainstream and there is space for cult. And there always has been in creative industries, in music, in art, in fashion, in books, in literature. So, you know, I, I want to be embracing that and I want my business to reflect that and I want my authors to feel like that is the perspective I have When I work with you as your editor, it's about looking at all the opportunities, looking at all the avenues open to you. Because as you say, you know, the market is, everyone is looking everywhere now. Whereas before it was about channels. It was about very narrow, linear channels. This comes from this and that comes from that and that leads to that. And then the process is complete. Whereas now it's, uh, as I say, you know, you've got agents who are looking at blogs, Every day, or um, and picking up those sort of projects for publishing. You, everyone is looking everywhere. Many years ago, it was it was much more linear, and uh, it was like a narrow channel. It was about a channel of discovery, and it was that this person tells you about this, and then this leads to this, and then this will re- result in that, and then you have your finished product. Whereas now there's this sense that really extraordinary stories uh, an extraordinary writing skills can come from anywhere. So everyone is having to be far more active in terms of where they look and what they look at. Uh, hence the fact that agents, I think, are, have, a lot, have a much greater workload than they ever did before. Um, but there is a real sense now that, you know, producers will look at anything and everything. As I say, they'll look at, you know, an, uh, an article in a magazine and turn that into a film if they see that it has merit.
1: It's exciting times, that's for sure. Uh, we're nearly out of time, but I must talk to you about your YouTube channel. Um, and, and you never seem to be in the same venue yeah. twice when you when, when you do this. You're always somewhere sunny uh, that isn't the UK. Uh, tell us about that, the YouTube channel, the idea of that, because what I get from that is that you're the one you're always reading something and you read very widely. That's, that's what I've got from looking at those. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, they was sort of originally, and you'll see if you go to the channel, the first five are tutorials. So they're very sort of very kind of basic kind of crude, actual narrative, um, narrative tools that I feel that you, that as a writer, they're at your disposal. I mean, I go, there's a lot more detail to them, but it was, it was an overview, I think of, 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 in terms of writing, starting points and 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 what you might want to employ as you as you begin about the process of writing. So, and then once they were done, I thought I don't really want to talk about that forever and ever. I absolutely do reading and reading widely, obviously. So I thought I will I will kind of run an informal book club, uh, and it started off with again there were five. And I have these, like, kind of little sort of jokes to myself. So the first five, I want to have, like, a different wallpaper or backdrop behind me. (laughs) It's, like, a challenge to myself to try and find some sort of unusual, something unusual to to kind of, you know, because I'm quite a visual person as well. So... So the first five, you're, the tutorials have all got a weird bookcase behind me. The next five have all got a strange wallpaper or, like, sort of odd pattern. Um, and then I started traveling quite sort of, you know, intensively last year and thought I'll do a summer series because summer and reading are very um, compatible with one another. So I did three last year for summer, and now what I'm going to do is it's going to be seasonal. So I'll probably do four a year, so one for winter, spring, summer, and autumn. I've just done the most recent one, and I was in Copenhagen. Uh, There's always, like, kind of sort of subtext to them, which, again, I really love. Either there's a kind of odd backdrop or there's a connection point between the fact I'm in Copenhagen, I'm talking about works in translation, or I was in Texas and talking about we are all completely beside ourselves, uh or so there's like a, there's an American author and I'm actually in America. So there's always like a, there's a lot of um internal consistency to the way that I read, I would say, Uh you know, I bought a heartbreaking work of staggering genius when I was in San Francisco because Dave Eggers, you know, it's very much about San Francisco in the 1990s. So I, I like that. I like, I like, you know, connection points. Uh It's a way of me playing games with, with myself and, and, and with the viewers to see if they can figure out what the connections are, you know, why. As I say, it's like subtext, it's like little kind of clues.
1: It's it's the film industry rubbing off on you by the sounds <laughs> of
2: things, isn't it? <laughs> I like I like depth, you know, I like I like narrative depth. I'm a big fan of narrative depth, and so that's what I sort of try to get across with the with the YouTube channel. Uh, and also in reviewing the books, I try to pull out the reasons why I think they're so successful or so important. And again, you know, writers can use that. That's useful information to know why a certain book is is holding with the market or getting really great reviews or getting um, getting a, a significant amount of readers. That, that they can they can use that uh, as you know to, to to drive their own writing forward.
1: It's been really, really informative and interesting talking today, Philip. I'm fascinated by the the LA work because it's always exciting when people talk about films. Um, You're not not just available on YouTube. You have other web outlets. Do you want to just finish by telling us where those are?
0: Yeah,
2: of course. So the YouTube channel is there under SmartQuill. I have a Facebook page where I put up sort of interesting articles, often writing advice, little kind of, you know, sort of tips and pointers. Twitter is more about... Uh, initiatives that I've discovered that might be interesting and I also have an Instagram account which is again sort of extremely visual and often it's like a it's like a digital bookshelf for me it's more about sort of what I've seen of the literary world and 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 books that I've read so book covers um, and making them as beautiful as possible because books are beautiful
0: thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys if you enjoyed the show please consider sharing it with your indie author friends Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.